This interview was recorded in February 2020, just a few weeks before COVID-19 effectively shut down the theater community. Listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Caitlin McClincy is the Artistic Associate at the Omaha Community Playhouse, where she is proud to oversee and contribute to selecting the season for the Alternative Programming Series. She is an established director, most recently directing the Omaha Community Playhouse's production of The Rocky Horror Show, as well as serving as assistant director for The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. She has also directed Disenchanted for The Candy Project. She is a local actress and playwright, last seen on stage at the Blue Barn Theater in The City in the City in the City as Tess Maynard, and Jenny in the Blue Barn's production of The Christians. She was last seen on the OCP stage as Colleen in Ripcord and Harper in Angels in America Part 1 and 2 for OCP's alternative programming series, and has also been seen on stage at the Great Plains Theater Conference. Caitlin McClincy. Yeah. Welcome to the green room. Thank you for having me. This is really cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming over. As I like to always begin my interviews, where are you from originally? Because I know you're not from Nebraska. Yes. I'm where Penn State is. Big is, Ten School. Yeah. It's called State College, but it's so funny when you tell people you're from State College, they immediately think, that's not the name of the town. So State College, Pennsylvania and population. Jeez. You know what? I I don't even know because it's funny. There's little tiny towns in it's a very rural era area, except for the college, you know, aspect of it. So it's it's not it, it's very comparable to Omaha, I would think. Like it just reminded that's why when I first started coming out to Omaha on spring breaks and stuff, I I just really adapted well to Omaha because it reminded me a lot of Pennsylvania, except for the lack of mountains and very flat. (laughs) Okay. State College. Where did you go to grade school? I went to Bullsburg Elementary, which is right outside of State College. And then I moved to, so I grew up, grew up in Bullsburg, went there until sixth grade Sixth grade, went to State College, and then my high school was State College Area High School. And it was just funny because if you went to that high school, it was expected you were going to go to Penn State. It was either Penn State, a vocational school, or Ivy League school. It was kind of that was your, or, you know, yeah, like a vocational school, beauty school, cars, that kind of thing. But it was just kind of expected that you would end up going to Penn State, which I did. And I, I lived maybe a mile away from Penn State. So, but I was a very pretty sheltered kid. So I really wasn't like, you know, too wild with that kind of stuff until 
until I was actually like in college. It wasn't one of those like, oh, I'm going to really do a lot of sneaking around. Like we went bowling and like, what was your highest bowling score? You know, I'm actually not a bad bowler. I wouldn't know. I don't know if I ever keep track of it, but I'm actually not a bad bowler. It's something with I'm really good at things that require precision. So like darts, I'm oddly good at bowling. I'm oddly good at beer pong, things that like (laughs) things that I'm shooting at I can do. When you were in grade school, did you participate in any school plays? I did. You know, it's funny. There was a teacher that went that my my mom was a teacher. She was a special education teacher until she retired. And one of the teachers that worked with my mom, she had her own. Her name was Miss Jameson and she had her own. It wasn't like a production company or anything like that, but it was like every year they would put on plays and it started. My sister started them. Uh, she's four years older than me. And she, she kind of started the way with wanting the interest of that. But my grandfather really got me involved in like wanting to perform. And he was one of the people that had a video camera before, like I would see them a lot. And he would just always record me like making commercials or like I would have to do routines. And I was like, he was very like, if you're going to do this, you're going to do a good job. And so I would like prepare and like, you know, come up with my material. And then my first play with Miss Jameson was like, it was a Beatles like review. Like it was like all Beatles songs. And like, I sang a couple of songs and it was so funny because like my mom had it on VHS and I watched it later and it was like, my head was always watching the director in the wings. I never looked straight out ever. And, and that continued for like my first couple of plays. It was just, (laughs) I always had my head to the left, just like looking at what was going on, like what I should be doing as opposed to like, do, I mean, I was doing it like my body was doing it, but my head was always (laughs) looking to the left. Always in profile. Yes. And so, (laughs) and still to this day, no, um, It's just, it's funny because you get that first early spark of wanting to do this. And then she just, I think the last time that she did a play for us was in fourth grade, maybe third grade. And then it was just, there wasn't a lot of outlet for that when I was a kid. Otherwise, like when I got to high school, it really wasn't something that was huge in my school. And I wasn't exactly like the biggest joiner in high school. So it's, it's just something that I really, when I moved to Omaha, I I did stuff with, you know, in college and stuff like that. But when I moved to Omaha, I really used it as a source to make friends because I figured, you know, an average cast is, you know, at least five people. And maybe I'd have five people that were forced to hang out with me on a weekly basis. (laughs) And so that was kind of the starts to really getting involved. I mean, I, I had done plays pretty consistently, like 
as a child when I could, or I would do what morphed into a series that I did with my best girlfriends. And we would just record ourselves and we would do all our own skits. And that was like, I mean, every week we would come up with new material. It was kind of Saturday Night Live-esque where we would have our sleepovers and like, you know, I would write us sketches and like, or she would, and we would perform, you know, and then have our musical guests in quotes, but it was us. Right. (laughs) And like we would lip sync and like, it was just. And then you did you videotape it? Oh yeah. I have them all. I, I forget what it was called. It was like. I think it was, I think it was like growing pains or something. There was something, it was something, I mean, that already had a show, right? (laughs) Like it was nothing revolutionary. I'm going to pause for a second because you mentioned your grandfather. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, your grandfather appeared in Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead that was shot in Pennsylvania. Yes. We'll diverge from you for a second and make this podcast about your grandfather. So tell me about that story. It's funny. He was such a. It's funny because when he he died, when I was roughly eight, he made such an impression on my life. Like just he had such a fun personality. He was really like into pranks and magic shops and like all kinds of like he like if a plane would fly overhead we would sit on the porch and watch like the plane lights go by and he would tell me exactly where the plane was going and like I was in awe because I had no idea how he knew where all these planes are always going and, and stuff. So it was funny because I remember sitting in the living room at my grandma's house and the black and white Night of the Living Dead came on and he said that, you know, he was in it. And I was like, because of how he was, I thought he was kidding. <laughs> And so I just wasn't and I was getting really angry at him because I thought he was lying and stuff. And then all of a sudden I saw him and it was so it was so weird. It was I remember like watching it and looking back and like watching it and looking back and like not quite getting it because I had to have been five, maybe six and just not quite processing like how he got into the TV and like that (laughs) there were other people that like he knew and like, how did that happen? And so he, I don't know if he told me or my mom told me, but it was, they had, so my, my extended family is from a really small town outside of Pittsburgh and it's called Ambridge. And they have a lot of, Well, at the time, now it's a very like Wild West town. But at the time, it was a lot of elderly people that lived there. And he like they needed extras for all these big graveyard scenes and all these big field shots. And he just went and put on a white T-shirt and like went down and was like, what do you need me for? And didn't know, you know, if he was going to get paid or like what the whole situation really was. But he was just so interested and fascinated in uh, Hollywood and TV and and like he dressed in full Western gear all the time. Like he had several cowboy hats, like full Stetson hats. And like, and it was because my grandma watched soap operas growing up and she was in love with Winston. Was it Winston? Who's the guy that he's still on? 
And at the time, there's a there was a character, Vincent. Vincent. He is still on, I guess. And at the time, is it Vincent from Young and the Restless? Yes, uh, Eric Newman. He was. He was. She was in That's love with him. And funny. at the time when she was watching, he was going through a real Western phase on the show. Like okay. he wore these big, like kind of, I think probably when Dynasty was huge, yeah. like they were trying to capitalize yeah. in their own yeah. way. And she was in love with him. So he was like, okay, if that's what you want. And he started wearing belt buckles and like Western shirts and like all, I mean, all the time. <laughs> like, and he had several belt buckles, these big hat boxes in his closet with these big hats. He was just such a character. And it was, and it was a way that I connected with him that was really special. Like that. I, I knew that if I did these sketches and stuff, like somebody that was in the TV would clap for me. Right. So it was, it was, it was really cool. He was just a really eccentric kind of odd duck. I said, Vincent, Victor Newman. That's who it was. Victor. Eric, yeah. Victor. I knew it was something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, Victor Newman. I went, oh, it's Eric Braden. I said, Eric Newman. I'm like, that's not. And right. he's still on. I he think. is. He is. <laughs> he is still on. Yeah. Going back now to when you went to Penn State, what was your degree in then? I had psych was my main focus when I was there. I was just always, I mean, and you too, like obsessed with like why people are the way that they are mm -hmm. and why people do the things that they do. I've just always been really fascinated by that and, you know, watched countless crime shows and that kind of thing. I originally wanted to go to school to be a guidance counselor. And it was just one of those things where you get to your last year and they're like, oh, but you need a master's degree to do anything with this. Like maybe something you'd tell somebody like, I mean, obviously, you know, like you're going to need more schooling. Right. But it was just one of those like I was always interested in it, but it was almost like for fun. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't something that I was like, I'm you know, I want to go join the FBI or I want to go do these things. When I first came out here, I was obsessed with joining the Prism Paranormal Society. <laughs> that was like my first thing. I'm like, I need to find something that's creepy here or something. And they just would not have me, <laughs> which was hilarious. Like I sent them so many emails and letters and like being like, hi, like I really, I really want to, you know, join up with you guys. I really want to meet you. I really want, and they were having no parts of me. So I was like, well then I guess I'll just do a play. No. Yeah. No, it's funny because I, I did my first, I did an audition for Susie Bear Collins for Mr. Roberts. That was my first audition and I didn't get the part, but I didn't know how Omaha theater posted about that. Like if they did a list or if they, it was online somewhere or anything like that. And so I started taking classes and I was like, Oh, I'll just take a class. And that way, like I have something fun to do like you know, once a week. And I went to my first acting class and then there was the awesome eighties prom audition. And I was like, well, you know, it was the same week as the Mr. Roberts audition because that, that first show that I did, it was Mr. Roberts, Fiddler on the Roof and Awesome 80s Prom were the three shows going on. And so I auditioned for Awesome 80s Prom with Carl and I got the show and it conflicted with my class. So I had to drop out of my my acting class and just got thrown into an improv show my first time. So it was 
And I actually saw that too. And it was so much fun. It's so funny now. I so love, you were the cheerleader. I was. I was one of three. I was one, one of three. three. Yes. And it's funny because now it's one of my favorite things. I think with any of the shows I've ever done, looking back at all the people I know now that were there, like they post like these pictures in their 80s gear and stuff. I'm like, you were there too? Because I was, you know, dancing with everybody and I had just had no clue. And I remember the one night, because they had a portion of the show that was karaoke and Emily McCriskey sang. And I was like, oh, she's really good. Like to like my, I was like, she's really good. Like she should do theater. And like, everyone looked at me and I'm like, what? Like, you know, like I just, it was funny. Like the people that would take the mic and like sing and stuff. And I was always like blown away at how good. And I'm like, okay, now looking back, like, obviously like they were all theater people. I was surrounded by you guys, but I had no idea. And that show was so fun. And like all of us just really bonded quickly because it was, you know, uh, an interactive show. So it was very new. I think I don't know how many I mean, previously that the Playhouse had done, but I kind of was under the impression that it was like a newer thing for them or like something they were trying. I think probably one of the only ones they probably would have done would have been Tony. I was going to say Tony and Tina's, which I did right after. That was my next show that I did in Omaha right after. Yeah, he's from. But yeah, it was it was funny because now like those people that I met, like you know, they're some of my best friends still. And it's, it's funny, like what shows stick with you and like, because the show itself, like wasn't, you know, anything that I'm like, wow, I really remember that monologue that the cheerleader delivered. No, it was just, we had such a blast. Mm -hmm. If they would do that show again, I would do it in a second. Mm -hmm. Like even if it was a fundraiser or something, because it was so like, Controlled chaos. Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Exactly. So Awesome 80s Prom was your first foray into Omaha theater. Mm -hmm. And then what did you do after that? Well, you said you said Tony and Tina. Yeah, it was funny because I I was doing a lot of improv right away, which was kind of good because it really got me to develop a quick witted like we you got to get yourself out of this jam mentality. And then I, I think it was, I went to the shelter belt and I think I was doing like shelter skelters and, and that, because obviously that appealed to me with the Halloween aspect of things. And then I did like some shelter belt with loves. And then from there, I think my first that I really started to do stuff because I liked the actual script was I went to an audition for UNO and it was this play called Government Inspector. And during that audition, my friend, well, he wasn't my friend at the time, but like I met somebody named Colt and he was talking to me about this script called Five Lesbians Eating a Quiche. And he was like, it's really funny. My friends and I are doing it, you know, and he had just seen my audition. He was like, hey, you should just come read for this. And I didn't really know a lot of the people that went to UNO because I obviously didn't go there, but we had so much fun at that table read for that because we were just crying and it was so fun to like do a show that was 
one, like the kind of theater that I really responded to. So like this, just the script itself was terrific, but and, then I'm going to interrupt you yeah. for a second. So for those who don't know what the show is about, yeah, the title obviously is interesting, <laughs> yeah. but ex- explain, uh, sure. explain about the show. A little so bit. it's called five lesbians eating a quiche. And it is, it follows the Susan B. Anthony annual club meeting. And they are these 1950s housewives. And they are, I mean, very Donna Reed-esque. And they are having their annual meeting about their love for quiche. And at the same time, there's a threat of nuclear war going on. And so they are in the process of all of this meet. This meeting in particular is taking place inside a bomb shelter. <laughs> and so they are having this meeting about their love of quiche, their love of eggs, everything like that. And while they are in the meeting, a nuclear bomb goes off. And so they are, they realize that likely if they step outside, they're going to be liquefied, you know, like everything is toxic outside of this like utopian society. And it finally gave them the freedom to admit one by one that they are lesbians. Like they have been in this group because they are lesbians. And then not only on top of that, they each have a love within their group. And so it was such a funny, but like poignant show at the same time of this, that the fear of nuclear war is what gets you to actually be honest with what your true feelings are for a friend or or a love interest or any of that and how women in society are forced to look like, you know, the expectations of them. But it was so cleverly done and so funny. And like the women that I was lucky enough to get cast with were so just, we just had a ball. Like it was just so fun. And they were, and each character was so well-developed, which you don't see a lot with. Well, first of all, there aren't a lot of all female scripts out there. And no. with the number of women compared to men that are auditioning, what a great opportunity. Yes. And then, like you said, a lot of times with women's characters, they're not as well-rounded no. as male characters. No, or they're... But, and a lot of that is because there are still the, the majority of playwrights in this country are men, not women, although that's changing. And we'll get to that because yes. you two are a playwright. So... Yes. Yeah, it was it was great to see these well-rounded characters that, eat, you know, g- going and talking to the audience every night, like everybody had a different favorite. And that was really cool for to see my friends like, you know, having their shining moments in their own. Like each of us had like a moment to shine in that show, which is also rare. So it was just really it was such a good experience. And and it was good for me because after that, I kind of started to really think about characters that I wanted to play and shows that I wanted to participate in. And, you know, granted, I would still do things that my friends were doing because like I, that was my main focus was joining theater to make friends, but it was a really cool way to start to think about the kinds of theater that I wanted to do and the kinds of theater that I wasn't seeing. So let's take a moment to talk about that. What I'm assuming that it was at that point 
when you started thinking about what you wanted to see on stage that you weren't seeing mm-hmm. that your playwriting mm-hmm. took over, took off? Yeah. Talk a little bit about what your vision is for what you want to see on stage. Yeah, I started to really think about it because I was seeing a lot of theater locally, nationally, that women, if they did have a large role or larger role, were kind of in different camps. It was they are looking for love. So they are the love interest of a man in a play. They are a raging, crazy character that you can't really connect with because it's just like, I'm angry. I'm going to be at a 10 this entire show. So I'm almost unwatchable. There's nothing to me but this. Or I'm very meek. I I don't have a lot of anything. I, but but in, in the end, I'll come into my own because a man took interest in me. It was just, it was just a lot of rep repetitive stuff that I was seeing. And a lot of things that led me up to just trying to think about what I wanted to audition for, like what, what would bring me to an audition? And, and I was just finding that those roles just weren't there that I wanted to read for. And it's, it's kind of started with Shelter Belt had some monologue auctions and that kind of got me thinking about, you know, I loved writing monologues for people, specifically personalized monologues, because it helped for me to have people see them in a different light. You wrote for the monologue show that I wrote Mm -hmm. for that one year, Mm -hmm. and I wrote one for Leanne Carlson. And that was really a cool experience because I really started to think about, you know, my friend Leanne and like what, what that, what it's like. Because, you know, Leanne goes to auditions and she's seen as this, you know, showgirl. I mean, she's a beautiful, beautiful performer and she's Elle Woods and she's this, you know, showstopper performer. And I and I started to think about that and like how somebody that is seen a certain way, even if it's positively can have prejudices against her or misconceptions about her and how women are seen in theater and in 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 society with like if you're if you're beautiful then you must be this way if you're beautiful you you must get the part because of the way you look or you get the part because of this or that or this and it's just the stuff that i don't, don't see a lot with that men have to deal with, mm-hmm. um, at least in my experience. I've been to auditions where I was up for a role and there was another actress who is extremely talented and it came down to she was too tall for her leading man. And I was crushed for her because I'm like, or he's too short for her. Right, right. You know, like, right. or what does it matter anyway? I've seen it time and time again with myself reading scripts, with you know, I've been up for roles where I feel like I had a really solid connection with an actor on stage that's my same sex. And then it would be, but you don't have a connection with, you know, the person that's playing your love interest. And I'm like, okay, cool. Cause he's in this script for five pages and it's right. not about him. Right. So 
You know, it just, it's hard to stomach when it happens continuously. And it's obviously not just my, you know, cross to bear or whatever, but I see it happening to lots of my friends and it's just, it's just tiring. You know, it's, it's tiring to feel like you walk into these auditions and you put yourself out on the, you know, at the mercy of the person that's casting and you just hope that they see the bigger picture. And that starts with choosing scripts that are appealing for both, you know, both genders, all, all, you know, walks. And it's something that I really tried to focus on with casting and writing characters. It was, it was very important to me that if I wrote a script, I would be happy if I didn't get the lead, I'd be happy with the supporting role because she was just as well developed. Right. I think that's really important to look at a script as a whole Mm -hmm. when you're asking people to audition for a play is, you know, there's very rare that a lot of roles are very thought out. All the roles are well-rounded and that's what to me makes a good story. It's, it's you care and you're invested because otherwise, why is that character there? And I think a lot of the times that why is that character there falls on the female characters in the story. It's like, she is not necessary. And that's unfortunate because I feel like a lot of the times writing for women is an afterthought. And it's, it's something that I'm, you know, tried to think about with casting and with, with writing and going into auditions at all. Like if it's not, if it's not worth you know, m- volunteering my time or something like that. To me, it's like if people would stop auditioning for roles that aren't worth it, maybe like casting directors and artistic directors would stop programming those shows. You know, if if you see a drop in auditions or people that are coming to auditions, maybe they'd see like, oh, well, there really isn't anything that's, you know, worth producing about this or, you know, like that's the kind of things that I tried to start being more conscious of. If I'm going to an audition, it's because I believe in this character and I believe in this script or the theater that it's at. And if, and I'm not just going to audition for things anymore just to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about a couple of the scripts that you've, that you've written. Mm -hmm. Um, Slabs was Mm -hmm. one that you, that you've written. And also I'm going to, I'm going to, those two are definitely getting better. Yes, thank you. Yeah. I, couldn't think, I couldn't think of the name of it. I'm like, I know what it is. Yeah. Talk a little bit about both those scripts. Sure. So Slabs was my first. I had started and stopped a bunch of writing projects before. And Slabs just kind of came together in a very short amount of time for me. My main thing with Slabs was I, I love twist endings and things. I'm fascinated with movies and scripts and stuff that you don't really see where it's all leading to, or you think it's going one way. And so I, my goal with it was, I just want to write something that has a twist ending, but that's not, you know, uh, horrifying or, you know, anything like that. And then I wanted to write for three generations of women. I wanted to have a role that multiple different age ranges could apply for and audition for. And so that was my main goal with that. So Slabs was about a funeral parlor and it 
the kind of concept of it came from me and Noah Diaz would go on these road trips to Kansas City. And to get there, you have to go through, you know, stretches of Iowa where there's nothing around. We always would drive by these like vast farm areas and fields. And I'm like, you know, where do these people shop? Where do these people go to the dentist? You know, like where do these people buy their groceries and that kind of thing? And so then I just started to think like, when people in a very small town die, you know, what's that like for the person that runs the funeral parlor? Because odds are, you know, that person or you are invested in them in some way when the population is that low. And what's that person's life like? So I just really started to obviously like kind of a morbid, morbid person, but I started to think about that and like, The just the physical tasks that are required when you are embalming somebody and how to separate doing your job when it is somebody that, you know, because those people that live in those small country towns, it will be somebody that they know. And how how does that, you know, shift people's perspective and what kind of a person would it take to work in that profession? And, and, and so it was a little bit about his story and like the people in his life. And then when tragedy hits in a small town and you are forced to work closely with somebody that you know very well, what's the toll on that? And then those two are definitely getting murdered was it really started, it started a lot because of my friendship with Bo Berry. I started just thinking about like, what if we had a reality show or like, what if we, you know, just stuff that like, you know, you, you, nothing's ever going to come of these things, but it's just like, if you were stranded on a desert Island, like who would you want to be stranded with? Or if you had to go into like a crazy situation and I'm, and it it would always make me laugh. Cause I'm like, if I had Bo with me, at least I'd laugh, you know, like at least I'd, you know, I'd probably get murdered, but like, it'd be fine. And so I just started thinking about what I wanted to accomplish for women, which was, I want them to set up and deliver all the punchlines. You know, I want them to be able to deliver all of the laughs. It's a four person show. The difference is the male characters, they have two or three lines the entire show. So it was kind of turning the concept of, oh, okay. Like I had just seen a show that summer at a theater in town and the one female character had if five lines if that. And so I was like, I'm going to write a show like that for that has a man and see who shows up, you know, because that is what we have come to understand is normal for us. And so it was, you know, two, two women that like, they, they get all the punchlines, they get all the laughs and the male is present the entire show. He does not speak because he's the murderer. He's Santa Claus. He's dressed in a Santa Claus outfit, but it's these two women that go to a, they, they're on a, they're going on a road trip and they get stranded at this Bates-esque motel and it's a snowstorm and it's right before Christmas. And the entire time this guy dressed in this dirty Santa suit is trying to break in and murder them. And they are having such a good time. Like they're not stupid. It's not, you know, oh, we're, we're total idiots. 
they're just having such a good time and content with each other that they do not realize that it's happening the entire play. Like they, he, they're thwarting his efforts the entire time, just being themselves and keeping this man at bay. And they don't even realize they're doing it. And it was so fun. And we, Bo and I have gotten together a couple of times to work on it and, you know, just record it. And I'm still revising that play because it just, to me, it really made me proud that it was two women in the lead roles. One of them, it says specifically in the script that they have to be African-American, but it doesn't have anything to do with it. It's not one of those scripts where it is required for any other purpose other than a demand, you know, it, it, for diversity. And then it's just very tongue in cheek with the jokes and what women deal with and what, you know, it has smart humor in there that is commentary on what what's going on in society. And yeah, it was just a really fun time to write it. And it and then the male parts are very physical. It's a very like, you know, you have to convey your story without speaking which I felt was a very interesting task to task a male with. We did it for before the boards at the shelter belt and it was me and Bo and Nick Zadina and Tom Jerry. And we had just such a good time. Like it was just a really fun project to do together because it was just relaxed and, but the timing and, and that kind of thing was very intricate. Lots of lots of physical comedy, lots of sight gags that needed to happen, like bam, 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 bam. And so that was different ways to challenge. And that's what I like about writing is like if I was going to be tasked with doing something or if I wanted to audition for a play, what kind of stuff would I want to try? And that was kind of also the first time that I realized that writing a script is a lot like directing. You know, you're you're writing this script, but you're telling the reader what to look at, what to notice, what the vision is, what's the scening and what's your, you know, eye and and that kind of thing. And so that was like my first time starting to dip my toe into thinking, oh, like it's very similar to directing. It's just directing in a different way. You're directing focus on paper instead of actually doing it for the actors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a good segue into talking about getting your foot in the door directing wise. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about your directing style. and Yeah. My first foray into it in Omaha was for Kathy Hirsch's theater company, The Candy Project, and it was called Disenchanted. And it was an all-female musical starring Snow White, you know, Aurora, Sleeping Beauty, all of them. And and how disenchanted they were with their fates from their from their fairy tales. And it was really cool because it was it was at Flix. We ended up doing it there. And what I appreciated about Candy Project is it's a show in a box. It's very bare bones. You don't have a set to hide behind. You don't have a huge budget to like throw at things. And so it's really up to the performers themselves to shine and what you can do in a small space. Because typically with Candy Project previously, they had done their shows at, you know, the Pizza Shop Collective or Flicks, like I said. I think they did 
Yeah, they did a show at the Bancroft Street Theater. That was the one I directed. Yep. Oh, yeah. Rooms. Yep. Yes. And and so, yes, it was very, very intimate. And so you didn't have a lot to hide behind. And so it was just finding these performers. And and that's where I really started to focus on. I, I really like realism in writing and I love living room dramas and that kind of thing. And so for me, it's fun to find the human realism that is in the absurd. So it's like with the Disney princesses, you know, who are these people? And like, what's, yes, you can be wacky and, and cartoons because that's what you are. But what's important with this is, you know, finding those moments that are human and why this story should be told and what you're disenchanted with was important to me. And that kind of segued into getting to help out with the alternative programming series and um, directing Night of the Living Dead for them, which was kind of an homage to my pap. And doing that was really cool because it was similar. It was like, you know, the leaning into the absurdity mm-hmm. of those like, you know, you cracked me up with that, with the like 1950s, like I'm angry now, <laughs> you know, like and and because that script was so outdated mm-hmm. and I'm mm-hmm. like, there's only one way to go and it's leaning way in, you know. And so it's for me with directing, it's like finding what what it is and like figuring out how you're going to lean in. Like what, what are we leaning into here? And with Rocky, it was, you know, I had never seen the movie before I got assigned that I wasn't, you know, into the mania with it. And so when I first watched it, I mean, I had seen it maybe when I was a kid and when I rewatched it, I thought, Oh, surely I'm going to get the jokes now because, (laughs) because I was, uh, you know, little when I saw it. And so now it'll all make sense. And I turned it off and I was like, what? And I was instantly scared to direct it because I was like, I don't know what I'm watching. Like, I don't understand this because I, I like to find the realism. I like to find who these people are. And to me, it was just like wet spaghetti at a wall. Like, I'm like, I don't understand. It was funny because I, you know, watch all my crime documentaries and all of that. And I watched this crime documentary on club kids and it hit me with that, that that's what these kids are. They're like club kids. It's it's this club kid scene. And they're like these, you know, larger than life people to protect themselves, like who they really are. And once I started to think about it like that, it really clicked for me because it turned into you know, what society says you should be, what society says that you should look like, act like, and be like. And so it was, you know, with Janet and Brad, I was really pounding into them of the, you know, be paper dolls, be, be like two dimensional. I don't ever want to see a thought in your head. Like you're what society thinks that we should be, you know, like just perfect and Republican and, you know, straight laced. And with Frank and Magenta and Columbia, I really tried to see the side of them that was hurting and, you know, that they are putting on this, they are more comfortable putting on this facade and putting on this makeup and putting on these wigs. And, you know, I didn't want it to seem like they were never in costume. 
to me, it was like, they are these, you know, they weren't, they didn't wake up like that. And it's like, to me in Rocky, when Ben eventually takes off his wig and was doing, you know, his amazing work with um, the ballads and that it, to me, humanized him. And we even went into detail with like, he was going to bleach his hair out uh, for under the wig. And I was like, no, I think have him be just a man and and underneath all of the leather and the bodice and, uh, and the makeup, because that's what he's protecting himself from. And, and so it was really cool to, dive into it thinking about we're doing this for the audience. This show isn't for us. Like you need to be one of the freaks, be the outsider to connect with this script. And so it was like thinking about, you know, our audience is LGBT. Our audience is the kid that gets bullied at school. You know, like it's the kid that is the runaway. It's the kid that doesn't feel like he belongs. And that's when it really clicked to me of finding these human moments in this absurd script. And that's when it became really special for me. It was just a different experience than I expected to have with that show. So it was really cool. Talk about how your vision is now for the alternative programming series and and what you have lined up with that. I just sent in my submissions for that. And we are looking for scripts that that whole program was so special to me. It was when I first moved here, that was kind of like when I really started to connect with scripts, getting involved and getting on stage and doing these absurd scripts that were just more raw and a little more dicey. Luckily, I have, you know, I have access to you know, what's on the pipeline. Cause Noah, uh, is a great sounding board for, you know, here's, here's a classmate script of mine that you should really take a look at. And here's, you know, something new, but I really wanted to focus this year on scripts that had a message that you may not realize at first there's a script that's going to be done and it's called the Thanksgiving play and it requires an all white cast. And it's it's a very dark comedy, but it is something that I feel like is along the lines of finding humor in really dark subject matters. And that's what I like about the alternative programming series is like whether it's a drama or whether it's uh, humorous, it's finding these scripts that are on the you know edges and fringes of what we think about what's, what's, what's normal. And, and I liked that to me, it was a safe space for audiences to see familiar faces. So it was like, oh, you know, here's, you know, Mary Kelly doing this like script and and there's a lot of swearing or there's a lot of like subjects that I'm not really cool with, but it's Mary Kelly. So like, I'll, I'll watch it, you know, like that's kind of what made it a safe space is like seeing somebody familiar showing you something new. And that's what I really respond to with the program. It's just something that, you know, giving giving people that aren't theater people an experience, because a lot of the times, like, you know, my fiance, he he saw his first play when he started dating me and not used to, you know, what what, you know, seeing a play beyond like your elementary years like and we started going to plays. 
And the plays that he would respond to were these modern plays that, you know, he could relate to. It's like, even if you, even if you don't like Shakespeare, you're, you could respond to something that you can connect with because you know what, you know, this show is, you're in on the joke, you're in on the pop culture aspect of things. And so that's what I really like about it is it's what's coming up. It's all or, you know, has been done within recent years of just this is this is something that maybe they would toy with doing on the at maybe in the Drew or something like that. But but you should see it anyway, because it's the direction theater can go. It doesn't always have to be Annie, get your gun. You know, it doesn't always have to be that. It's something I've talked about with people before is the fine line. Any theater, not just the Playhouse, has to walk with older audiences wanting certain things, but having to appeal to younger audiences that will eventually become your older audiences. So having something like Shelter Belts Before the Boards or, you know, the Porch series that the Blue Barn has Mm -hmm. done or the alternative programming Mm -hmm. series Mm -hmm. that the Playhouse does is, like you said, it introduces people who may not, one, maybe can't afford to go to all kinds of different theater, but dips their toe in the water for the first time. And a show that's done there may cause them to want to jump headfirst into the next opportunity Mm -hmm. and become your audience of the future. Yeah. And I like that, you know, with the Playhouse that they even separate their programming a little bit, you know, like the stuff that's going to be in the Drew is going to be different than what you'd find on the main stage. Typically it's, it's a little quirkier in general, at least that's been my experience with like stuff that would go move from the alternative programming and get programmed at other theaters in town or at the Playhouse. And so it's really it's really cool to see people trying it out and just seeing how they feel and watching, you know, sitting in the audience and watching the shows and the reactions to them. It's like, you know, when you have something with night of the living dead where people, you know, they, they knew what they were getting into. It's a Halloween. It was, it was, you know, a script that, people knew it's a movie people knew, but like, here's our interpretation of it. And here's why this stuff is so outdated. Here's why, like, here's what was problematic about that movie. And here's what we loved about it. And not that that is a typical alternative programming script, because that was something new that they had tried of adapting a movie script, which was an undertaking for me. But it was, it's cool to see people sitting back and, you know, I was so proud when we produced Noah's play, the juniors, and it's since gone on that has productions in, you know, Chicago and all of that. But it, it was so cool because, you know, Noah and I were both obsessed with the alternative programming series. And it's cool that now his writing is what can fuel. That's the niche that it fell into is this new, kind of odd, but it has a story in there. It has a message in there somewhere and it's not always going to be in the most conventional package. And so it was really cool to watch people react to his script because people would, you know, gasp or, or look uncomfortable or laugh, you know, and once they saw it was okay to laugh because 
I think a lot of the times with the, with scripts that are new or bold, people haven't been trained how to react to them yet. And so when I cite something like the Thanksgiving play that we're going to be doing next year, it's okay. Like, is this okay to laugh at? Is this okay? And it's like, yes, because that's the, that's the society that we're in. It's a reflection of your society, you know, the society and like what society says is okay or is not okay. And, and so I, I really like watching people just take in these shows and, and experience them because that I think is just as much of part of it. A uh, part of the show is just watching people take it in. So let's talk a little bit about the upcoming Playhouse season. Yes. By the time people hear this, mm -hmm. the season has been announced. Yeah. So we can talk about it. And we're recording this like a couple of days before the reveal. So I hear it all before you. Yeah. Do. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm going to be directing for them next year. I'm doing a a straight play, which is different because I've been getting musicals, <laughs> but I'm really excited. It's a four person Irish straight play. It's called Outside Mullingar. It was nominated for a Tony a couple of years back. And it reminds me a lot of Almost Maine in mm. feel. It is two couples. Well, they're, uh, it's, it's four people. Two are older. They're supposed to be in their 70s. And two that are younger, roughly late 30s, early 40s. And it's set in Ireland. And it is about a farm of a, a, a group of like people that live in the country. And this amazing character named Rosemary, she is the 30 something. And she is, she owns the it's the two houses that are on in the same area. There's just two houses and the people in the, in the first house are going to be selling their, they want to sell the land to the, uh, to somebody that lives in America and they're all well and good to do this, except Rosemary who lives in the other house owns this. It sounds to me like about, a, about enough land that would equal like a driveway and she owns just that driveway. And it's because the boy who lives in the first house pushed her down into the grass and shoved her one day. And so she marched over to the house and she made her father buy that spot so that he could be banned from that spot. Like so that she so that he can't come on to like where she he made her feel terrible. And she took ownership over that spot and she's been holding this, you know, but it's also revealed that she is in love with that boy in the other house. And so it's it's like I I am keeping this. This is where this transpired. And so it's it's almost like two little hermit houses it's not like Hatfields and McCoys, you know, it's, it's just a like stand over this property. And then you find out through the course, it's a very short script. It's 51 pages, but you find out throughout, you know, why she's holding on to this 
memory and why the boy in the other house is like, you know, they keep saying he's odd the the entire play. And she comes over and she's telling the parents that she's in love with him. And they're like, he's never going to be with you. He's strange. He's odd. You know, he's, and you don't quite know why it's a very sweet story. And the characters are so great. And, and because it's Irish, it's very zippy, very, but dry, you know, like they, they have this humor that is so witty and like, you know, cutthroat and, but, but they say it with a straight face. Like they don't even know that they're saying is awful, but it's just, and it's so funny because if you perform it at the speed that it's supposed to be, it's just nonstop quips. And, but it's so smart. And her her character, Rosemary particularly appealed to me because she is very assured of herself and her spot in the world. And she has made it known that she is in love with the boy in the other house, but she's just waiting him out. Like she's like, you know, I'm going to keep living my life and he's going to, he's going to get it together and we're going to end up together. Like it's just the way that it is. And she is very funny. And in her own, it's like, I don't like when people say like, you know, because feminism isn't like one size fits all. It's, you know, there are feminists that want to get married. There are feminists that, you know, want to do a traditional wedding. And, and, and so it's interesting to me that you can be a feminist character, but still want traditional things. And, and, and she's very strong willed. And so I'm, I'm interested to see how people audition to play her because of the way that she reads on the page, because to me, she's hilarious. Like she's just very matter of fact. I'm, I'll be interested how people come in to play her because Mm -hmm. she's very matter of fact, and that can come off a certain way you know, to someone reading a, a female character to me, it's, uh, you know, she's got a spunk and she's just very sure of herself, but that can come off as arrogance or, you know, mean or, you know, rude or bitchy or whatever, but it's, so that'll be interesting to mm-hmm. see how that plays out. And then as far as, you know, some of the other shows that are coming up, I'm, I'm interested because, I know some of them, I know that they are doing Clybourne Park, which is really cool because they did, you know, Reason in the Sun and they mm-hmm. did Color Purple and that kind of thing. I remember seeing it at Snap. I still remember that set from the mm-hmm. Snap show. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous. And I remember a shell in that show. Mm-hmm. It was, and Jennifer Gilg was in that and it was just lovely. Noah was in that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And I, yeah. So I think that'll be a really interesting place for it. Kinky Boots they're Mm going to be doing, which is a fun, fun show. I'm trying to think of some of the other Water by the Spoonful, which is a very. I've read that play. That's a good play. It is a very good play. It's a very diverse show. So that's one of those things that. it's a really good chance to celebrate, you know, diversity on Mm -hmm. stage. I'm really proud of the work that Omaha has specifically done with diversity on stage and specifically 
my applause goes to shows that are diverse when they don't have to be. Mm -hmm. I think the Rose is excellent at showing diversity on stage when it doesn't need to to be, you know, it's wonderful to do shows that are, you know, the color purple and all of those, but it's to me, I think equally as important to do shows that the character just happens to be a person of color. That to me speaks much more volumes in normalizing seeing that on stage for an audience because Mm -hmm. it should be a normal thing. And unfortunately, we're not quite there yet. And and getting people to remove the lens of, you know, that this looks weird. If an audience can't get over that, then that's not an audience that you need to invest in. You know, Right, right. Anything else you want to talk about in regards to the Playhouse season? You know, the directing fellowship is coming back up. And that's an excellent program for people because it lets people who it's hard to get started directing in Omaha because you have to get, have experience to direct and you have to direct to get experience. And it's kind of a vicious cycle. And so it's a really cool way if you're at all interested in directing or you, you know, but you, you're not sure if, you know, you don't have a lot of experience or you do have experience, but you don't have the time to a lot. It's really cool because you get assigned to a show from the alternative programming series and those scripts are not easy. So it's, you know, right off the bat, a challenge. So for the people that are more seasoned, they get to do these scripts that are very out of the box and and complex. And then for the people that are new, it's okay. This is material I'm not used to seeing, you know, this isn't, you know, comfortable. And the program, you know, has you work with people to, to build your skills and what it takes to run a rehearsal and what it takes to schedule. And, and, you know, if if you don't need that, you don't need that because, you know, there's different levels of skills in the program. I think it's really cool to, for people that are interested to kind of, if they are more experienced to, you know, almost check ego at the door and really just be like, you know what, I have something to offer. I have something to, you know, I want to build my resume. I want to, because like I said, it's hard to get in at different places to, you know, if you have a drive or a desire to direct. So it's, it's a really cool program. And so I'm excited for them that they are offering that again this year. It's the third year that they're offering that to people that are aspiring to, to try. And I'm excited for the alternative programming series, of course, and looking forward to going on Tuesday for the season announcement. And, you know, just, it's always such a buzz fun time of seeing what theaters are going to be coming up with. And I'm really hoping that lots of theaters in town have stellar seasons this year. And I, I'm looking forward to auditioning for things this year. You know, I've kind of, the last thing I did was the city in the city in the city at the blue barn. And, you know, I, that was 2016. So I'm, I'm, I think I'd like to get to act again. So I'm, I'm, you know, really looking forward to looking for scripts that appeal to me and that I can go for. And until then, you know, directing outside Mullingar. And that is definitely a role that I would have gone for had I not been directing it. So I encourage 
you know, it's four great roles, a very smart challenging. So I'm really looking forward to those and the turnout and then just supporting local theater coming up. So yeah. And you're getting married. And I'm getting married. Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm getting married this year, which is great. So I, we kind of had a change of plans for what our original idea was. And now we're doing something that is a lot more personal and I'm just, I'm very excited. And I would like to, you know, Cole has kind of come into the Omaha theater family and he loves working box office and getting to know people, you know, backstage and saying hi to everybody. And he's just really taken to it too. It's just a very special dynamic that Omaha theater has of like, you see these people doing these amazing things that you're friends with. And sometimes it's just amazing that you forget your friends with them for an evening and just watch them on stage. And you're like, wow, like I know that person. And that's, I've just been so impressed with people I know in real life and what they're capable of doing. And, and so I'm just really hopeful for the season coming up. Um, getting to see some of my friends audition for things and me possibly auditioning for things. And cause Cole's never seen me do anything. So it'd be fun to get to do something. So I don't know. I'm just really, really pumped. What's your favorite color? My favorite color is red, but it's a very specific kind of red. It's like a, it's like an orange red. It's uh, at the exact color is the Mac lipstick shade Lady Danger. That is my favorite. Pantone number. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> four, four, five. No, that is my absolute favorite color. I love red lipstick on women. And that is my that is my signature color. That is your signature color. Yes. You and I both have an affinity for true crime. Weird question. Who's your favorite serial killer? Oh, my favorite serial killer. So this takes me back. Uh, <laughs> now, who, who, who? You know, it's funny. I, I would say, even though it, it's it's funny to me how you can be territorial over some serial sure. killer. You're like, so now like Ted Bundy is getting all this play and you're right. like, come on, you know, because he was my favorite, obviously not because of his crimes, but because he just reminded me of like, you know, a, a real life joker, you know, right. like, like getting out of escaping prison twice and doing all these things, you know, a chameleon and fooling these people. And so more so for his, you just couldn't crack him. Mm -hmm. No, there's no reasoning or anything like his mind was always ticking, like, right. Always going. So I'd say Ted Bundy, but if not, I always had a weird obsession with Jeffrey Dahmer too, mm -hmm. always, because he, even in his prison interviews and everything, always just seemed like a weird dichotomy of you, one, one version of himself that he would do in interviews where he was, he seemed remorseful mm -hmm. and very flat affect and matter of fact and mm -hmm. 
had this need for lonely, you know, loneliness that he was trying to soothe. But then, you know, he was beaten to death by his fellow inmate. Right. And it was because he was bragging about his crimes on the inside. And they said that that was all fake. You know, he wasn't that person. He was this terrible jerk that would laugh about it and like mess with his food and like in the mess hall and put it in shapes that look like a person. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. 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 Pantone shade. Pantone shade. Four, four, five, five. Do you have a favorite author? Oh, you know, I, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Roald Dahl just because of his colorful language with explaining, you know, explaining things to children in a way that was really colorful and almost macabre, but like always a lot of alliteration and, and I love his writing style. And so that's kind of got me into like people that wrote similarly to him. But I guess as far as a modern day person that I really respond to, no, not really. I really read a lot of like true crime stuff. I love, it's more like the subject matter that I love. It's not Mm -hmm. necessarily a particular author. Sure. Sure. If you could live anywhere else in the world besides Omaha, where would you live? I think Las Vegas. I am obsessed with Las Vegas. I just have this love for it. The last time that Cole and I went out there, we stayed at this pen, not a penthouse, like an amazing, like, I'm like, this is where like, it was, it was incredible. It was right after we got, we got engaged in Las Vegas. So I have an affinity for it just for that memory. But it's so like over the top, but not quite. It's Mm -hmm. like buffets, gays, 90s stars, like like all these things that like have a nostalgia for me. Everything's like neon and like palm trees. Yeah. I think I would vibe there very well. I would just get like, go down to the buffet, post up there and then like go take naps (laughs) if I won the lottery. Yeah. Do you have any shows that are on your bucket list? Bucket list shows. You know, I really like, there's this show called Dance Nation and it's a very strange script. It's about a a dance troupe and it's played by, they're supposed to be 12 year olds, but it's played by adults and they never act like they're not adults. You know, like they, they look like adults. They're not trying to conceal that. And it's a weird show, but they, there's one character in it has this like badass monologue about her sexuality and how people view her and how she doesn't feel bad for it and how she doesn't feel the need to compliment, like false compliment you. And like, I'm not going to, you know, fall into this you know, trap of like, I'm supposed to be nice and I'm supposed to be this way. I'm not like, and I, and I just love that monologue so much. Really love Grey Gardens, Obsessed and Side, is it Sideshow? Yeah, Sideshow. I mean, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, I think that would be a bucket list to direct someday. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because it's, you know, the kind of subject matter that I love and like Mm -hmm. the humanism of that that would be something that I'd be really interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you writing anything nowadays? You know, I, I have this new thing that I'm working on. 
And it is about a person who is in her 30s and she lives in her mom's basement and she is still a Girl Scout. (laughs) And she, she, so she was a Girl Scout her entire life and she's obviously aged out of the Scouts, but she's a very internal introverted person. And so her mom has her learn life skills by still earning badges because otherwise she won't do it. And so it's like, go on a date. Here is a badge or like, please drive your car away from me and like doing your taxes. And like they get more like elaborate and it's almost like a chapter book of like, and she still has meetings at her house. You know, her mom is still the. Den mother, the, or den, yeah, the right. den mother, very tired den mother. Um, and so it's just a bunch of little kids that are still, you know, they're earning their badges, but she's like, still like, okay. So, <laughs> like she doesn't act like she's above it. You know, she's right. like, what badge am I earning this week? You know, like, and so it's like a take on, you know, some of them are really funny, but then there's some that are, you know, heartbreaking right. that she has to like process sure. your process, your parents' divorce. Like, we're going to talk about it. You know, we're going to talk about these things and she doesn't want to, but she wants that badge. So, so, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's my next thing. What's your favorite swear word? Fuck. That is my favorite. It's just, it's the quintessential word. It works in all scenarios, all sentences. And it can be a happy thing or a upset. But yeah, good old fashioned fuck. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dana. <laughs> this was so fun. I had a blast. Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit www.thankyou5pod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. 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 That's the other guy.